El tabaco es una pasión que quema mientras arde. A cigar is a passion that burns when it is lit. Guillermo Cabrera Infante. Have you ever smoked a Partagas cigar? I mean a real Cuban Partagas cigar. An amazing cigar from one of the legendary Cuban families who created legacy and heritage from a leaf. Or maybe you think you smoked a real Partagas cigar. What if you smoked a Partagas but really didn't? What if you don't really care? Either way, light up, sit back, and relax. I have a story to tell. It all started in a Cuban prison in the 19th century. In 1845, Partagas cigars began producing some of the best cigars in Cuba. Like other cigar factories at the time, production was done assembly line style. It was honest work for Cubans, and Partagas employed hundreds of them. And these cigar artisans were good, really good. As they mastered their craft, however, conversation became an issue. You see, Cubans were known for having the gift of gab. We really like to talk. And these cigar masters would get distracted talking about politics or the most recent abuse of the Spanish government on the ever-faithful island colony of Cuba. Neighborhood gossip was also an issue. Whether for one of these reasons or just simply to combat boredom, Partagas had been looking for a way to improve production in his factory. Meanwhile, somewhere in a dank Spanish colonial prison on the island, the story of a prisoner made headlines in a widely read newspaper. This prisoner had requested a copy of the epic novel by Miguel Cervantes titled Don Quixote and had been reading the book aloud to his cellmates. As the story spread across the island, the owner of Partagas, Jaime Partagas, knew he had found the answer to his production problems. He immediately set about to find a reader, someone with a booming, bellowing voice. He purchased a lectern and placed it prominently in his factory. As the torciadores, aka the cigar rollers, quietly rolled their cigars, and the despaliadoras, aka the strippers, stripped the stems from the tobacco leaves. They were entertained, informed, inspired, and enlightened by literature and the daily news. So began the tradition of El Lector, the reader. These readers spawned a much-loved custom that lasted over 100 years in cigar factories from Cuba to Tampa, Florida. Eventually, radio and the advent of machine-made cigars crept in on the legacy of the lectores, however, and the tradition slowly began to die. Tampa and its beautiful Ybor City watched the tradition diminish, along with its own beauty as Cigar City, USA. Havana saw the new dictator Fidel Castro impose the decree, within the revolution, everything, outside the revolution, nothing. It's said that Castro caught wind of a lector reading Una Historia de Dos Ciudades, A Tale of Two Cities. Castro was well-read and had concluded that Dickens' work was full of anti-revolutionary rhetoric, so he quickly banned the lector from reading it and time continued to pass. The cigar families left Cuba, 
and Cubans became exiles. Miami soon became the ideal city for these immigrants seeking not only freedom, but opportunity. My father had been working for H. Upman Cigars. He left his job in Havana once the company was seized by the state. He never worked in the cigar business again, working instead in construction sales in Miami. My grandfather, who had worked in construction in Cuba, came to Miami and rolled cigars on the porch of his rented home. It's funny how things change. So the question I began with was, have you ever enjoyed a Partagas cigar? Maybe you got your hands on one of those taboo Cuban cigars with the red Partagas ring. A cigar American wannabe connoisseurs like to break out to impress their friends while on the golf course. But the truth is, no one has smoked a real Partagas cigar for over 60 years. I've smoked a Cuban state-owned cigar with a fake Partagas label and was underwhelmed. Right now, I'm smoking a Partagas Prominente, Benji Master Series cigar, and it is outstanding. When I say you haven't smoked a real Partagas, I mean a genuine Partagas family cigar made with Cuban tobacco grown on Cuban soil. You see, the family left Cuba and took their name with them. Still, though the Cuban government called folks like the Partagas family gusanos or worms, they saw the value in keeping the Partagas name. You can pick up that cigar right there next to the Capitol building in Havana complete with a cigar ring and a stolen family label. But it's not a real Partagas. Cuba hasn't seen a real Partagas in over 60 years. And Miami never really saw a lector sit at a lectern and tell a story, until now. This is the El Lector Podcast, stories and cigars from the exiled South. We hope you'll enjoy it. Welcome to the first episode of the Elector Podcast, stories and cigars from the exiled South. We are coming to you from Miami, somewhere north of Key West and south of Ybor City. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast is about a lot of things, but mostly it is about friends getting together to tell stories. We smoke cigars because everyone knows a story sounds better that way. These are stories from the magic city and the outer reaches of what we are calling the exiled South. Speaking of the Exiled South, this podcast 
will be hosted by four of Miami's exiles, spiritual and cultural exiles, who call Miami home. So why don't we just go around the table here and uh, give some introductions. My name is Matt Hedinger, and I originally came to Miami following a mentor mm. and came to work with him. And I was 23, 24 at the time, which I think was like the perfect time because you're open and you're yeah. willing to experience, you know, experience things and, and learn new cultures and um, met my wife here, got married, awesome. um, had a kid and then left. And that's really when I felt like an exile. Oh, yeah. When I was actually away from Miami. Uh, and we've just recently moved back. And so we're thrilled to be back here in the Excellent, place that man. we love. And we're, we're, we're glad you're back. Yes, Thank man. You. Welcome back. Be back. We're really seriously, we're really glad you're back. Matt, we, we all met um, on this. Well, we met years ago, but we, we spent a lot of time gathered around this table way before we started doing this. So we've been friends. We go, we go way back, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah. Many yeah, years. For sure. So it's... So I'm Mark. I'm here tonight smoking a Alec Bradley Prensado. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, I'm I'm in Miami. Been here 11 years. I came from Indiana. Moved from my to Miami directly from Muncie, Indiana, to work for Matt. In fact, and um, I stayed longer than him. He left like five years ago. So. <laughs> he wore me out. So so Matt, you're from Indiana too. Where are you from again? Well, I'm from Hammond, Indiana, but that's Hammond. actually Mark and I grew up in the same hometown. Okay, Muncie was where he was at school at. So, all right, we actually went mm-hmm. to the same, grew up the same hometown, same church. Yeah. So you guys go way back. Way back. Yeah, yeah. I've Tell known Matt since I was yeah. middle school, probably, probably maybe elementary school. Yeah. I'm uh, silently nodding my head. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, correct. Cool, cool, cool. Which is good to do on a podcast. <laughs> all right. <laughs> My name is Victor Labrada. I have kind of the reverse experience of Mark and Matt. I was born and raised in Miami, but spent a few years in the Midwest where I started, I changed my Facebook profile name to Victor Manuel Labrada. Not to be, com- <laughs> not to be confused with the singer of Victor Manuel, uh, whom I'm sure you all listen to. Of course. I'm sure everybody is. Celebrate his entire catalog. Exactly. The whole catalog. <laughs> But it was in, in my time away that I uh, realized just how strange Miami is and how unique it is. Um, and though I'm a born and raised uh, Miamian, I don't listen to Pitbull, and I can't remember the last time I was at the beach. Um, but, but you so tan so well. But I tan so well. <laughs> and that's really what sets me apart. I, I think we're going to need to add a record scratch sound there for the not listening to Pitbull. <laughs> I mean, he's not just Mr. 305 anymore. He's Mr. Right. Worldwide. worldwide. Mr. Worldwide, that's, that's right. All area codes. <laughs> so, Victor, where are your parents from? My father is from Cuba, uh, from the eastern section, El Oriente, a little town, a village called Niquero, uh, which has since been renamed, um, that entire area. Right. And uh, perhaps at some point we'll, we'll talk about that having your entire province renamed. Um, What's the new name? The, it's Granma province. And Wait. it's named after... Like, it, like the, my mom's mom? Yes. Grandma, it's grandma, basically. So, yeah. uh, well, let's tell this story right now that we can fit this in wherever. I'm very yeah, please, fascinated. please do. Yeah, this is so, good. So, El Oriente means the Orient, means the East. So it's the eastern section of the island. Um, generally, the Santiago de Cuba is, you know, the capital of El Oriente. It's the biggest city out there. There's also Manzanillo. Um, I think, is Camagüey out there? Yeah. 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 And Guantanamo Bay is out there. 
that that is the eastern section is more mountainous way more rural um poor further with from the capital of cosmopolitan city well when castro uh, proceeded with his revolution he made a beachhead at a very close to Nigeto, actually um in a boat he had bought and i forgot the story behind him buying the boat who he bought it from or who he was using it from yeah i don't remember that but the name of the boat was the grandma uh-huh. And so then to kind of uh, commemorate it or, you know, do a hagiography of the whole revolution, they split up the eastern province into different provinces, and they named that particular section Grandma Province, which everybody pronounces <laughs> Grandma. They don't but, okay, so can I ask you just a clarifying question? Mm-hmm. Was it Grandma, like, in English? Yeah. In English. Yeah. Okay. Not, it was a boat called not Grandma. a Spanish word that sounds like Grandma. It's, it's it, Grandma. It's total transliteration. It's, I mean, thank God it, didn't call, it wasn't called Uncle Sam. Then yeah. He would have had a real predicament. <laughs> if, you know, at that point, he would have been... <laughs> or anything that started... Would have like, been a little a, inconvenient for him. Well, yeah. I have expected it to be, because usually when those sorts of things get reverse engineered, it's like, oh, this is the Castro District or, you know, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's all the Castro District. Yeah. yeah. Um, By the way, hagiography, <coughs> a biography that idealizes its subject just for oh, nice. us yes. plebs. Thank you. It, it's um, typically when people talk about saints or or miracle workers, they'll write a hagiography. They'll only point out the, the good things. It's how we all hope to be commemorated yes. one day. Mm. Um, I'm going to have a very, very short... Hagiography. Well, I, I'm, I am. Uh, Basically, it's like he brought Mark Norman to Miami. <laughs> Good well, night. I'm going to try to popularize the term auto hagiography. Nice. <laughs> it rolls off the it tongue. It rolls so off nicely. the tongue. <laughs> the, the man who invented the word auto hagiography. <laughs> and no, that's not how he died. <laughs> <laughs> that's how David Lynch died. <laughs> that's how you're starting your auto hagiography. <laughs> that's how I'm starting my auto hagiography. subtitle. <laughs> um, so my father, my dad's from Cuba. He came over um, 50 years ago now. And my mother is from Bolivia. Uh, from Santa Cruz. The land of Raquel Welch. The land of Raquel Welch. Butch yes. and Sundance. I was, no, yes. they never well, made it. <laughs> the, <laughs> Butch and Sundance also, yes. So uh, you know, I've often said it's a match that can only be made in Miami. I can't imagine many other places where a Cuban and a Bolivian would meet. That's a really good point, um, yeah. And the historical connection um, is Che Guevara, who was the kind of second-in-command of the Cuban Revolution, in l- trying to lead a failed Bolivian revolution, was actually shot dead by the CIA in Bolivia. Uh, so that, I don't know if that was a topic of conversation in the first date or anything, but... And yes. that's why he gets a t-shirt. Yes. Right. He gets a free right. t-shirt for getting killed <laughs> by the CIA. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's my, um, my my stock. What is that called? Your lineage? Yeah. Your lineage. Your lineage. Like if I was going to... Your haggy yes, lineage? Yes. My, my haggy itch. Haggy <laughs> This is where my Scottish roots are. We're drifting into like haggis. Yes. Yes. Would you like a haggis? Well, for mm. us, it's uh, Morcia, no? It's, Morcia. It's, it's the closest thing we have yeah. to to, uh, to that nastiness. So uh, my name is Marcos, Marcos, uh, as we say in Spanish. And I am um, I was also born here in Miami. Uh, my parents came from Cuba in 60, I'm going to kill it, 62, 63, right? It was like December, January, forgot what, what, when exactly. I should know that. <laughs> um, and um, I was born here. They, they went to New Jersey. Of course, because that's where all good Cubans go back, back then when, when uh, it was all Elizabeth, New Jersey, or Union, Union City, City. Mm-hmm. or North Bergen, you know, Bergen Line Avenue, I've been there, represent, right? <laughs> Have you been there? 
Anyway, and um, I grew up here in, in, in Westchester, right? In Miami, not Westchester, New York. And um, we've been, uh, like we said earlier, this has been a time of just uh, getting together with you guys. And, and uh, as, as, you know, as I, as, as I came down here to settle over here, what is this? They call this Northern Key Largo. I don't want to give, I don't want to <laughs> disclose the location. This is uh, <laughs> mainland Cuba. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mainland Cuba? Mm-hmm. That's yes, what that's I true. called yeah. it. Okay. To family um, when I moved here. But, I it, but the actual place where I am is uh, people call it kind of, they complain about it being so far down south. So, you know, anyway. Um, so we've connected here over time, over the last how many years? I think eight to ten years that we've connected yeah. as friends. Ten years. Off and on, ten years. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, been a, it's been a good run. Um, and again, we're here, we're here because of, that's who we are, right? And we're, we'll be talking a little bit more about ourselves on uh, future episodes. But it's really cigars that bring us together, right? Cigars and stories. That's why we're here. Um, and over the next few episodes, we're going to be doing interviews. We'll, we'll be, you know, just talking whatever topic comes to mind as well. We, uh, we're sitting at a table here that's, that's near and dear to, to all of us. Um, it's a table where, that we've gathered around with, with many guys over many years, over the last, ten, over the last eight years, actually. And uh, this kind of represents what we're about. We're about uh, good conversation, right? Good stories. And we want to present these to a larger audience because we think there's a lot of great stories here in this, uh, this, this city that's kind of underappreciated, especially by the, <laughs> by the folks who live in it. Uh, we hear a lot of complaints about Miami all the time. Marcos, you did say folks, right? Folks. Okay. Yes, Sorry, I did say make, folks. Sure. Yes, uh, I did say folks. Um, so, so yeah. So it's 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 one of those places that you lo- that people love to hate. Uh, but there's a lot. There's so much more to this place, and we want to tell the stories from here and you know stretching out into surrounding areas. And and we're going to talk to some really interesting folks and bring some great stories to you. Uh, but again, we t- we're here about cigars, right, Matt? Absolutely. And, you know, cigars are kind of like what, uh, you know, the, the, this, it's, it's kind of like a, I read a book recently called Holy Smoke. And, and I thought that was such a great name. And because there is almost something almost sacred about it. Right. Right, Matt? Well, my, you know, there's a story I kind of want to share. And that's my cigar story started actually in 1972 when a crack commando unit was wrongfully <laughs> accused of a crime <laughs> and incarcerated. No, I, I like you know as a kid in the mid. My dad didn't smoke. Uh, nobody smoked cigars that I knew, but I'm, I mean I'm really not kidding. As a kid, the A Team was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Watching that, I loved that show so much, and it was really watching George Papard, you know, nice Hannibal Smith. You know, at the end of every, you know, smoking cigars throughout the whole thing, but it was that, it was that victory cigar at the end of the mission. You know? Right. I love it when a plan comes together, right? Yep. So don't tell me like TV and movies and music doesn't affect us. Like I wouldn't smoke a cigar if it wasn't for, you know, the mm-hmm. A-team. But so I got to the point where I wanted to start smoking cigars. Of course, the first one I had, I puked my guts out that night, you know. Um, but I would, what I would do is whenever I came home from school and college, I would just get. 
uh, I would calculate in my head. I'm going to have like three opportunities to smoke a cigar. And I would walk into a humidor and I would just grab three random cigars. Nice. And I was the o- always the only guy out smoking a cigar surrounded by other dumb college kids smoking cloves. <laughs> it's like, look, grow a pair, smoke weed or smoke a cigarette. <laughs> like, knock it off with the clove. And uh, so that was something that I was I felt um, odd because of that. It, I, I, I enjoyed it. I kept doing it. I, I love cigars. But that was something that made me an outcast. Yeah. Where I where I was from, and then when I moved down here for the first time, you know, there's this wonderful feeling when you're out walking around and like you get that hint, someone in your proximity oh, yeah. smoking yes. a cigar. Yes. Like it's one of the most. You know, you're, it, it's just like that scene <laughs> in Finding Nemo where the shark smells blood. Exactly. Like, someone has a cigar near here. It's, <laughs> yeah, I have a, a little dog and he hates cats and like he he's this tiny little nothing of a dog, but he turns into like. Some sort of hunter, a hunting dog. Like he, like his, he perks up, you know, chest out. Matt's There's a cat in your dog getting excited. I, I was doing a physical impression of my dog. Uh, th- that was like, oh, I'm in a place where this is accepted. And then being around that, that this is like the main way to hang out with guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it gives us something to do. It makes it, you know, I, I find it terribly relaxing. Some of the best lessons I've ever taught have been over great cigars as I smoked them outside preparing to teach. Yep. Um, Kind of opens things up, but in a different way from marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) I I would know nothing about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like I never, I never did that. I never messed with drugs, never smoked marijuana. Um, But man, I love a good cigar and I love a big cigar. I I, I look at a cigar as like a time commitment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How much time have I got to enjoy this? I remember talking with my uncle, uh, my uncle Mike, shout out, and he he loves to have a dog walking cigar. He's like, yeah, it's perfect for like That's walking nice. the dog or mowing the lawn. <laughs> like you just you know, it's a short one. He he the Hemingway short stories, the oh yeah, Fuentes. Yeah, He's yeah. like, yeah, it's perfect. You know, you, it's yeah. not a commitment, but it's you know. That's like a twenty minute cigar, maybe. Yeah. If you puff slowly. Yeah. 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 So it's uh, <laughs> like my my parents, my 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 dad was uh, worked. As I said in the introduction, he worked for H. Upman Cigars in Cuba. And my, my, my grandmother also worked in the cigar industry. And, and then, you know, we come here and I find out that my, great, my grandfather would, would roll cigars on his, on his front porch and, and, and give them away. I don't think, I don't think he'd sell them. I think he'd just give them away. There's kind of like a, there's a heritage aspect to it. There's a, a reaching back into... Um, into you know where where who you are culturally speaking, and and there's a spiritual connection to it. I believe. Well, I I think it leaves cigars for a lot of Cubans. Um, it leaves a huge cultural footprint on yeah. the rest of the world. To where growing up, I mean, name the main export of Paraguay, name name the main export of like Belize, or anything about those countries. I was told there would be no math. <laughs> <laughs> and. But growing up, you know, watching TV like everybody else and hearing about Cuba on TV shows that have nothing to do with Cuba because of the cigars. Like watching Seinfeld and like, oh, Cubans. Yeah, yeah a whole, a whole episode. Yeah. I totally was thinking about yeah. that episode. A whole episode like that. And as a kid, it kind of gave me this impression or almost like that puffed up like, that's right, Cubans. Yeah. And not having an idea back then 
how big of an impact that is kind of thing. Like, oh, everybody has their thing. Like, no, actually. Well, and not that Cubans invented cigars, but that they're the gold standard. Yeah. Like, not not only... Well, um, somehow it was attached... Actually, they did invent the, go- the cigar. Well, okay, I apologize. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that they... In- I, okay, I'm not saying... It was actually... Lector, lecturers, please. But yes. it was actually the, the, the natives of Cuba... Uh, who who were who were found smoking the cigars the first time? I'm sure. And now, what cool. I read uh, was that uh, historically was that tobacco actually came from Peru. I don't know if this is true, but it worked its way into the Caribbean, and by the time uh, Columbus arrived and uh, started doing what he did, he uh, you know the, he he came there, and these people were were puffing hard on <laughs> on unrolled leaves. No, I, I mean, that's really cool. I didn't know that. But I, I'm talking like people from Virginia aren't like, hey, hey he's smoking a cigarette. That, <laughs> that's from Virginia. You know, like, yeah, it's. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it is. the. I thought you meant like Cubans weren't viewed as the gold standard. And I was no, like, no, 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 no. Like no. You, now it's not just that thing. It's the best of that thing. Yeah. The thing that everybody like pursues and aspires yeah. to. And for s- such a relatively small country to, to have that much of a cultural yeah. impression. Yeah. Um, yeah. Growing up in Northwest Indiana, that's what I knew about about Cuba was there's the mysteriousness of the embargo and cigars. Like that's the thing that people want from Cuba is their cigars. And you know, it's it's actually embarrassing how long it took me to understand much more than that. For me, smoke like because I like cigars and smoking cigars made other people down here like me. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> like. like I'm not the machine, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a connection thing for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, it was it was a passport in. Right. It was well, it, it's something that I mean, you see somebody smoking a cigarette, and you know they're on a cigarette break, they're waiting in line, they're addicted. There's all these kind of stigmas that come with somebody smoking a cigarette, unless they're like rolling their own cigarettes, and then they're like, okay, this guy like works in his own car, probably killed somebody at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but you see somebody smoking a cigar, and it's almost like there's a guy who actually has like. Time, he has time. I mean, yeah. time to burn, so to speak. Yeah, that it, it's almost this leisure kind of thing. Yeah. Like, if you could play golf for an hour in the middle of your day, but still do work. That's the cigar has that leisurely aspect to it and that status. Right. I don't. I don't see cigar fiends anywhere. Well, that's well. I <laughs> we could do a whole show on friendship, but like now at this point in my life, when I meet a guy and I think he's cool, I'm like, oh, could we possibly be friends? I'm always like. By the way, do you like do you like do you smoke cigars? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like oh no, like oh, oh. It's like, yeah, wah, exactly. Wah. Yeah. Hey, are you into Pinterest? <laughs> <laughs> I ask that if they don't like cigars. Right, exactly. so that's, that's the follow up. up. Yeah, nice. flowchart. If no, spend Pinterest. a lot of time on Pinterest. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> so so I said earlier that we you know buddy you know a while back we started doing this hanging out and uh, through a venue that we named the Eagle and Child Men's Forum and you know a bunch of guys would gather here. But I re- before that, I remember I went to a cigar lounge uh, in, in Miami Lakes with a friend of mine. And I don't even know if it's, still, if it's there anymore, but we walked in. It was the middle of the afternoon. We, hit, we had some time to kill. And we bought a couple of cigars, and we sat down. And it were these chairs set up in a circle. And then these, these guys started coming in one by one, like three or four guys. And, we, and soon enough, we're all sitting there in a circle. And we don't know each other. And we start having this great conversation. And it wasn't about sports. It wasn't about anything, you know, po- politics. It was just like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I, you know, this is what I, this is what I work in. And, you know, and then we, we you know, you, you're married, you have kids. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, I got two kids. 
And and suddenly I was I, I just sat there and I said, this is amazing. This doesn't happen at a bar. This doesn't happen, yeah. you know, uh, at a cigarette break, like you said, Victor. It's it's it, it's something that only a cigar can allow. That type of conversation. Rarely is some kind of uh, enthusiasm so portable, or some kind of pastime or hobby. Like if you are um, oh, yeah, a stamp collector, you're not just walking around with your book of stamps. <laughs> and then somebody's like, "Hey, you collect stamps too?" And, yeah. like, and, and you don't you don't want to ask somebody. I don't I forget what's the word that if you like a, if you like stamps, like it's a weird. Oh yeah. But it's a, uh, it, I think it's called the name. being a lamo. Lamography. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> arachnophobia. Yes, they made a movie about it. I haven't seen it yet, but oh, I'm sure there's plenty of stamps. That's the word. Amphibious. And you can use the word for Sam Clark. Oh, no, like no, onophilia or something. Yeah, it doesn't sound oh, right. Any, yeah. So, yeah, those kinds of pastimes are not so portable. You need like high context. You need to go to a, a coin collecting show or a stamp collecting show, whatever, what have you, um, or like a car show, whatever. But with cigars, you could run into somebody in the streets about a cigar. And it's like, that's a hobby. That guy, it, there are very few cigar smokers, I would imagine, that are just like compulsory. Like they, they bought one on the way to work and they had to smoke it before they get into the job. No, like they're, they've put some time into this hobby. And you can yeah. talk about that hobby with them with very low context. You don't need to, have, to be anywhere special. You just see somebody smoking a cigar. And that's a conversation starter right there. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, a stamp collector is called a philatelist, oh, also it. known as a fatalist. <laughs> <laughs> it always but that is a stamp collector. Yes, yes. Every, everything gets mailed. Yes. Such a yeah. dark, dark view of the world. Right. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, it's it, it's it's such a it, it made it quite an impact on us as cigar lovers and we're not connoisseurs by by the way this is not going to be a show we're going to be reviewing cigars and we're not connoisseurs we're aficionados yeah or aficionados there's there's a there's a name for that too if you want to look it up a cigar sommelier uh but i've seen these guys and they 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 get a cigar and they stick it in their nose and they sniff it through one nostril oh my son's one of those yeah <laughs> there you go. exactly my your two-year-old your two-year-old two son yeah. yes Totally respect Prodigy. them. I'd love to be able to make a living off of sticking a cigar up my nose, but you know, that he's a is Hot Wheels sommelier. <laughs> so, what ended up happening was we Cheetos. we started in our in our in our intro. We we laid out a history of the lectores, and we end up here in Miami of all places at the end of the story. Why? Because this is where a lot of Cuban exiles came to start their lives. Um, so over the last six years of those eight to 10 that we've been together as friends, we've been enjoying sharing the story of the lectores uh, with folks who have come to our events to hear stories. And some of those, so what we did is we started hosting these events called Elector Speaker Series, which is kind of what launched this idea of, uh, of this, the Elector podcast. And we've had over the years our first, you know, we our first uh, elector, our first lector, sorry, our first the lector, <laughs> <laughs> our first speaker was a gentleman by the name of Victor Rivas, who is a, a Hollywood actor who wrote a book, um, and uh, he came and shared his story with us. And I'm gonna draw a blank on the book because that's me, but <laughs> I'll remember it. I'll, we'll, we'll remember it as, as time goes by. Somebody can look Quick right up. Quick to the Google. Yes, do Google Victor Rivas book. And, right. and since then, that was kind of, a, that was kind of like a, a chance meeting I had with him, and he, flew, he actually flew from California to visit family, and we coordinated the event 
around his visit for Noche Buena Christmas. A private family matter. A private family matter. Thank you, Mark. And uh, he uh, he came and shared his story with us. And and what was hilarious was we're we're meeting at a church actually, right? It was a, it was a first elector meeting. And who walked in, oh, Matt? Man. Oh man, it was so cool. And I'm blanking on his name, but it was like I have the picture. Stephen Bauer. His name is Manny. Stephen yeah. Bauer. Stephen like, freaking like, Bauer. His name like, is Manny. I actually refer to him as my little friend. But um, no, <laughs> oh. Stephen. Ba- he has like three names. Stephen yeah. Bauer. That was who? Was who? He's Al Pacino's sidekick in Scarface. Yeah, like, he's, he's Manny. Right? Manny. Manny. He's Manny. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the voice of reason in Scarface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was epic. It was so cool. It was. Right. A, it was. <laughs> and also, I remember guys just looking back. He's going, also in Breaking Bad. He's also in Breaking Bad. He has yeah. a recurring role. The fourth season. In oh, Mexico, he's, he's been in he Blue Bloods recently. Like, but pool. but this is Spoiler. okay. We're like just speed bumping over something really important. That you know, you were introducing yourself, Marcos, and you're saying you know, Mark, Marcos, whatever. But you're also known as the Marcos. The Marcos in some circles. Really, uh, our friend Ted Gluck. Oh, Ted Cluck. Cluck on his podcast refers to you as the Marcos. The Marcos, I didn't and, hear and that. And a big <laughs> part of our journey, our adventure as a group has been, you just get connected to the most random, awesome people. That like I don't understand why they talk to you. I don't either. There's no honestly. reason. Like you, yeah. you just you. Go, I just emailed them. He said, "Sure, I'll come down." You know, and yeah, and that's why we got Stephen Bauer, who. May or may not have been portraying certain aspects of Scarface at the time when he walked into our church, but that still happened. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. It was great, and we also had uh, this this one I I just remembered here, Robert Rose, who was a film producer, is a film producer, and he does uh, travel films. Uh, but one of the, the reason I connected with him was because he was in Cuba, and he did a he did a mini doc he filmed a mini documentary on the punk rock scene in Havana. And and he interviewed all these these fringe kids that were just flipping off the camera when they were asked about what do they think about the government and you know in, in, in Cuba and all that stuff and and I, I contacted him and he said yeah man I'm gonna, actually going to be in Miami and we did of, a lectorative event around of that. course he did because yeah. you are <laughs> the Ferris Bueller of our group thank you I don't know I I mean maybe the, I don't were, know no. does it make me. You, you want me to answer that? Well, I, don't know. <laughs> I think it will unfold as the podcast continues. But you're the guy that gets on the float and everybody sings Don Shane along with you. That's <laughs> that's the dynamic. Like, it breaks out in Beatles. <laughs> so we also had Rolando Yanez, who was uh, the uh, pro- who produced a film called uh, White Elephant. I almost blanked on the name again, uh, which is about the Miami baseball stadium, Bobby Maduro Stadium. Uh, recently, we had uh, Joe Cardona. Who was our? I think one of our last lectores, uh, who who produced a film called Miami Bohemian, and we hosted that one at the Ball and Chain here in Little Havana, and it was a great event. And so, and and all, and all these events, and we had we had many more, but all these events basically tied. What they did was it, the purpose of them was to to have hear a great story, um, kind of couched in a in a in another great story about. Cuban history, which which had has to do with cigar culture, and and kind of reaching back to 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 something historic that has meaning to a lot of us here in Miami. Miami's changed over the years, you know, but but there's still a lot of Cubans here, and there's a lot of Cuban Americans here. You know, we who grew up here, 
you know, hearing our parents tell these fantastical stories about <laughs> life in Cuba, you know, where, where apparently everything was better in Cuba, right? You know, and, and uh, you know, there was, there was, there was no racism, and, <laughs> which is my favorite. There were no, there were, there was no cats in Cuba. Uh, no, there were no cats in Cuba. That's right. That's right. And the so, streets were paved with cheese. No, no, everything, everything was great. Uh, and then until the, the bearded one came. So, and uh, if you can hear the wind, I don't know if, if anybody can hear it, but we're recording this outdoors, and that's how we're going to be doing this, right? We're going to be, because yep. our wives won't let us smoke inside the house. So <laughs> and because we live sense. in Miami. That's I mean, right. That's, yeah. We get yeah. to be outside. It's a winter's night in Miami. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a few months ago now, when we were first talking about doing this, we were, we were thinking of a good tagline, and we came up with um, c- stories and cigars from the exiled south. But before that, Matt had offered... A, a pretty good tagline, which I think is kind of a running theme for what we're doing here. Um, and Matt, I'll let you say it. I, you remember it better than I do. I'll let you say it. It was Miami, a love story. And yeah, that was good. I'm that good. Was damn I'm good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and why a love story? Because we, we love this city. And, and yeah. uh, it's, it's hard to love sometimes, but we, we do love this city. <clears throat> so... Victor, you got. Uh, I, I wanted to allow you the opportunity to kind of talk about this because you have some in- interesting insight on growing up in Miami and and life here. Well, it, it's funny how you say uh, we love this city. Recently, I had the opportunity to talk about the uh, the different kinds of love, um, and then, you know the the Greek words for love. We we have one word for love, and in Greek, there's a few, and one of those words for love is. Um, Phileo, which is like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So it's, it's this feeling of love, of familiarity, companionship, kind of the feeling that, that friends have. Um, when Tr- Dutch and what's, uh, what's the character's name in Predator? Uh, Schwarzenegger's character and Dutch from the movie Dutch. Talking about Carl Weathers? Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers, when they shit not shake hands when they like embrace biceps basically oh, which, yeah, was, which, yeah, yeah. which was the <laughs> foreshadowing for over the top yes and in, in the arm wrestling pose yes yes in the arm wrestling pose there's that kind of love and then there's agape love which is really a choice the kind of love where you say i'm going to love you in spite of what happens today i'm going to love you i'm choosing to love you uh it's a self-sacrificial love and I think Miami engenders both of those. It also engenders a lot of erotic love. Um, <laughs> as, um, not, just not so much Eros. here at the table. Not here at the table, right. but it, Miami is the kind of place where everyone seems either like they've just come from or are going to a rap video. <laughs> and Which they may very well they be. They may very well be. I'm video. not exaggerating. Do they still yeah. make music videos? Cause <laughs> They're dressing up for something. <laughs> <laughs> and... And people are, are very well dressed. Everyone is looking fine, and ha- everything's on fleek. All that is going on in Miami constantly. Like everybody's been entered into some, some kind of contest. He works. I'm with sorry. Te- he works with teenagers. On it's fleek. okay. Yeah. yeah, it's a term. You can. Everything's really nice. Is that French? <laughs> Not on fleek. On fleek. Yeah. On fleek. It's the on fleek, fleek sheet. On fleek. Um, but growing up here. It was like anywhere else in the country. When you, where you grow up, you don't really realize you're growing up somewhere in particular. Uh, even if you grew up like on a boat or in Antarctica, you just think, oh, this is what it's like growing up. 
Um, right. You know, your parents are stupid and you're grounded. And in Miami, a lot of the people that I've met who never left have that feeling of like, well, that, you know, it's just this is Miami. It's just what things are like. Um, it's like that story of the two fish who run into each other, swim into each other in the ocean. And one says, you know, how's the water? And the other fish is like, what the hell is water? Ah, uh, yes. And that is, that's what the culture of Miami is. Um, and that, a lot of that was uh, true for me growing up in La Sahuacera, which is Cuban for the southwest area um, mm-hmm. of Miami-Dade County, out in the suburbs. And the suburbs here are like the suburbs anywhere else, except the food is much, much better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the traffic is much, much worse. And I have to say that growing up watching the news, it didn't seem violent. But then going visiting other places, we had very violent news um, or rather Channel 7 news. Uh, shout out to Channel 7. <laughs> WSVN. Always, made, always made sure to highlight whatever freakish thing might have happened that day. Um, and Dave or yeah, Dave Barry has written books and books about how strange the news is in Miami. Uh, but growing up here. I never really understood the uniqueness of it, the culture of it. Um, I think my first great exposure to really the Miami that most people experience was playing baseball with Alex in eighth grade in Tamiami, which is this big park, um, big park next to Florida International University. Yeah, where the youth fair is. Where the youth fair is. It's kind of a cultural touchstone for Cuban Miami. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's in Sweetwater. all these kind of Western neighborhoods were became the Cuban suburbs and having grown up in an area that was at the time a little more Anglo, it was my first real exposure to people who they learned English. Um, Like I, my parents didn't teach me English. I had to learn English uh, from TV and I don't have an accent because of it because my parents didn't bother to speak to me in English and here seeing people who were, um, seem to be really Cuban or really Colombian or really what have you. And all of that being something that just became part of who I was. And I didn't realize how strange it was until I moved away. And that was... That's uh, when you went to St. Louis. That's when I went to St. Louis. I moved to St. Louis to go to grad school. I spent about three and a half years there. I love St. Louis. Um, The food is nothing to write home about. But the people are nice... Uh, the winters are horrible, but if you can put up with that, it's a very easygoing city. It's a, it's a good place to just be yourself and spending some time there and then visiting Miami as often as I could to see family and just seeing how many things about Miami are nowhere else in the country. Um, not just, it's not just like, uh, and I had to explain this to people in St. Louis, Miami isn't, um, like Los Angeles where, oh yeah, there's this, there's the part of town where all the Hispanic people live. And then there's the real Los Angeles that has all the movie stars and whatever and Orange County, all that. Miami is the reverse. It's here's the neighborhood where all the Anglo people live. And then in the rest of the city, you'll find smatterings of every now and then somebody with the last name Miller. But for the most part, you're going to see Rodriguez, Sanchez. A lot of Z's. A lot of Z's. Mm -hmm. um, Gutierrez. You're going to see those names and a lot of people who are not self-conscious about their culture. Mm -hmm. Um which is a big difference in Miami. In other places, if you're a minority, you're very self-conscious about your minority and you want to have a parade for a minority. You yeah. want to you want to do something that shows <laughs> we're here, we're a community, like the Puerto Rican parades in New yeah. York. And in Miami there are those parades, um, but at the same time it's just well everybody's a minority. Everybody's Hispanic. 
Yeah, it's kind of like when you travel north as a kid. When we would try, I, I didn't travel that much. We, I think the furthest north we went was Orlando to go to Disney World when I was a kid. But when we traveled north to uh, out of here, or I've heard other folks say how they've traveled out of state, uh, and they would talk about being, they, they, they were like, man, it was weird. I, I was actually discriminated against. We're like, really? And we're like, what does that feel like? I don't know. It, it didn't really bother me. <laughs> it was yeah. like, it was kind of like, it's not a thing for, for people down here. So the, fir- the first moment that I had my, um, it wasn't racism really. It was more like I didn't realize um, how other people saw yeah. Hispanic people right. until I I spent a summer in Franklin, Tennessee, and I had the glamorous position of uh, Frymaster at an Arby's. I I was maybe twenty years old. It was my first time uh, really spending an extended period of time outside of Miami uh, that wasn't you know Bolivia, and. <laughs> There, I got this job at Arby's. Long story, I just needed something to do for the summer. Nobody else would hire me. Arby's hired me, so I wanted to make some money there. And the uh, the manager, Rodney, I'll never forget Rodney, a nice guy, and he put me on the lunch shift and eventually put me on the night shift, which was a lot easier. And I got to meet the employees there, obviously, all my coworkers, most of them, were either Peruvian, Honduran, Mexican, um, very little English. Uh, there was one woman who was the night manager who had not a great grasp of English. And she would actually grab me to kind of translate for her in a lot of situations. And Rodney, I know that this is a podcast and you can't see me. I'm very light-skinned. Uh, for uh, You might think, if, you're, if you haven't been to Florida, you might think for a Hispanic person, I'm pretty light-skinned. <laughs> Uh, but if you've been to Florida, you realize we come in all shades. Yes. And I spoke some Spanish to a coworker, and Rodney was there. And Rodney's like, do you speak Spanish? I was like, I, I told you in the interview, I speak Spanish. Like, my last name is Labrada. Like, what do you think that is? He's like, I thought it was Italian. I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, I guess it does sound Italian. All right, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, my, la my name is Labrada. La, la <laughs> and, and, like, my name's Victor. I'm not, like, Juan or Jose. So there, it struck me, like, Oh my goodness, I'm not obviously Hispanic. Like, there's a thing that's obviously Hispanic in the right. rest of the country. But in Miami, you're basically assumed to be Hispanic. If you are under six feet tall, yeah. <laughs> you're assumed to be Hispanic. Exactly. If you're over six feet, then it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's. He's from the Midwest. He's Midwest, yeah, yeah. you know, he's corn fed. <laughs> corn fed beef, yeah. Can you get that thing off the top shelf for me? Dutch. <laughs> yes. Ancestry yeah, and all that. When, when I moved away to St. Louis for grad school, um, that's a half truth. That was well, a true thing. I went to grad school, but the real impetus for me uh, moving was at that time. I felt like I just needed to get out of Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few things going on in my life that really propelled me, but overall, <coughs> I had it almost felt like growing up in any you know little small town. And Miami has such a, a gravitational pull that it was hard to get out right. of it. And my opportunity was to go to, to grad school in St. Louis and and I took that and I was so glad to get out at the time. And I was so glad to get to experience a different culture and make new friends and realize how much television had really homogenized my growing up where I can meet people who grew up in completely different parts of the country mm-hmm. and we have something to talk about. Um, oh, you watch The Simpsons too. Great. <laughs> That's apparently as much of my cultural makeup as you know, being Cuban. Can I, can I ask a question though? Yes. The gravitational pull, how much of that do you think 
is the factor of the close-knit family. Yeah, that's most of what it is. It's in... I remember having this conversation with my um, my high school girlfriend back in high school. She came from a, a very white family. Uh, one of the last... You know, there's plenty of white families still in Miami, but one of the, the families that seemed really out of place in their neighborhood as they got older. And we remarked on how different our families viewed um, raising children. So for her family, if she turned 18 and was still living at home, then her parents thought that she, that they had been a failure to her. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we did not raise an independent adult. You know, this is a child that we still have. Whereas in my family, it felt like the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. If I would have moved out at 18, my, my parents would have thought, like, well, why do you hate us? Why, why are you leaving? Education and, was a major tenant in my household from my mom who raised three kids and got her master's while doing it on her own. Mm. And I think that there was an aspect of success of like, go to go to school. Right. And then go. Well, seek your fortune, not fortune, but like, cause my family is very service oriented, but go, go, go make your own thing. And that, yeah, it was like, get out of the net, like launch. Oh, well, yeah. I think my, my, Parents might have been idealistic in, in that I could achieve all that while staying at home. <laughs> <laughs> and that, um, I mean, when I first moved out of the house, I must have been 23, which in some parts of America, that's like really that that old, at, you know, for that time. I know now there's a, oh, yeah, time people it's move a out. totally different picture now. But uh, my first roommate was Mark Norman, who's sitting across from me here. Right here. Right. Yeah. And and R- when I raise moved, your hand, Mark. <laughs> and and th- I'll never forget this. When I told my mom I was moving out, um, I was moving into a house with Mark and another friend of ours, uh, Johnny, who was a reservist um, in the military, and was going to grad school at, at University of Miami for um, I think Arabic translation. And I told my mom, "Oh yeah, well, Mark, you know, I know him from church, and Johnny, he's you know, he's in the reserves." And she's like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, like, like once a month he goes and, you know, does some training and they could call him up at some point if they need him. And my mom started breaking down in tears. Mm. I'm like, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, he's going to convince you to go and fight in the desert and you're going to die. And I was like, mom, that is a completely insane. <laughs> I was not very compassionate. I, I, I said, that's not going to happen. But she just could not be consoled uh, because she had that much of an attachment to me. And getting out and then getting out to St. Louis and, and coming back, um, spending some time in North Carolina after St. Louis, um, I experienced some of what Alex was talking about in that when I came back to Miami, I wanted to experience the Miami of my elementary school. Right. And what I mean by that is in elementary school, it seemed like we took so much time uh, for the school I was at to go on field trips to go see exactly. you know, El Farito, yeah. go see like the, you know, the beaches and the Everglades and all these natural things. This the kind of Miami that was here before anybody else got here. Yeah, exactly. Like when I was a kid, it was it was like the field trips were the Museum of Science, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, bike bike ride through the Gables. Yeah, uh, Chiquica State Park, which is like the Sulphur Springs out west that nobody knows about. Yeah, yeah. all all this all this Miami in South Florida that is was here before anybody got here will be after everybody leaves and seeing those taking bike rides after I moved back through these old neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and seeing these houses that that have been there for a century, which in Miami time is incredibly old. 
um, a, a place that experiences hurricanes, everything's going to be pretty young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then going kayaking on the coast, and for all of the um, nightlife and hubbub and busyness and traffic and pit bull and all that blaring loud Miami that gets portrayed on CSI or Burn Notice or Dexter or what have you, for all that, you go out to these places and you're like in the middle of nowhere. You're in the middle of nowhere in a city. Right. And that to me was kind of my decompression chamber coming back where I needed to go find those places and realize I'm not coming back to some kind of crazy, you know, drunken orgy of a city uh, that gets, you know, that gets portrayed like that on TV. Right. And also is, you know, maybe an earned reputation. But I was coming back to a place that's beautiful and that has actually quite a bit of history Mm -hmm. and a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Not everything here is being sold to you. There's a lot of things here that are actually very real. You just got to look for them. You got to look for them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what we're we're trying to present here is 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 an oppor- is opportunities to to delve into those stories uh, that that make this city pretty awesome uh, in our opinion. Yeah. Right. So, Mark, you you uh, y- you know, seeing it, just picking you because uh, you're right across from me. Uh, you know, seeing it from from fr- as as a guy who came from Indiana, uh, from Muncie. Uh, what, what, um, how do you see Miami as, uh, how did you fall in love with Miami? Well, so I, I moved here from Muncie. I'm from the Chicago area, really. It's Northwest Indiana in the shadows of Inland Steel, as Head said. <laughs> um, but yeah, the things I knew from Miami, I learned from the birdcage, that movie. Oh, that's Robin a great Williams. reference. It's a fantastic yeah, film. If you want to learn about Miami, watch the birdcage. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly yeah, like yeah. that. Like, it, it's so funny because there's so many little tropes from, from media about Miami. There's always, everything takes place on Ocean Drive, which is, you know, South Beach's, you know, beautiful oceanfront right, right, street right. with the Art Deco hotels. And um, so there's that. Cocaine is <laughs> on every street corner. Yes. Oh, co- um, cocaine true. Cowboys, man. Wait, watch that. True, true story. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but. Um, to just the, the veracity of that, I remember walking into my bank, which is not in a bad neighborhood, and seeing a little bag on the, the ground and picking it up and bringing it into the bank. It's like I think somebody left this. <laughs> and Did they jump you? Yeah, no, and, and they like and upon analyzing, like, oh, this is cocaine. It was a little bag of cocaine. Yeah. So on the way to the bank, somebody just <laughs> there you go, pull out their wallet, drop their cocaine <laughs> because it's Miami. It's Miami. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but th- those are the things that I thought of about Miami. You know, everywhere you look, there's going to be a woman in a bikini rollerblading. Um, it's just the, these are the things. That's that not birdcage. That's Miami Vice. That, that's, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's actually Miami. pretty Vice. No, pretty no. Accurate, that was the too. opening scene in Miami Vice. <laughs> no, the montage. They've, they've stopped rollerblading, but they're <laughs> yeah. still in bikinis. There's, yeah. But um, so for me, coming here, um, I had the opportunity for two summers during college to, to do summer internships, like summer long internships here and I was just like this is gonna be awesome it's you know a world city coming from you know Indiana and I just get to experience new things and one of my good friends lived on Collins Avenue on South Beach so I did get to see that part of Miami a lot Um, but work was most of what I remember from those couple summers was it's hot as can be like I'm gonna die from the heat like how short, how close can I park to the door of the building I have to go into? Because, oh my gosh, I don't want to die. Like yeah. walking into every meeting, pouring sweat, like mm-hmm. just everything like that. And um, 
So for me, that's what Miami was. And for the first couple of years I lived here, that that's really what it was like. And it, it is a hard city. You know, we kind of have, have talked about that. I remember, so I moved here. I had three part-time jobs for the first year that I lived here. And I remember I'd been here a couple months and I was house sitting for that friend out on Collins and uh, it was Thanksgiving and I was by myself. No one, you know, my family's all up in Indiana. They're having turkey. And I was also, one of the part-time jobs was retail. So I had to work Black Friday. And I just remember house sitting for my buddy. And so I'm in this condo on South Beach and I'm just, completely depressed i remember very distinctly this weekend thanksgiving weekend borrowing without telling him my friend's car i called down to the valet station and had them pull over the the convertible and i took my friend's wife's convertible sorry stacy if you're listening and uh i, I was driving her convertible i remember because i was listening to justin timberlake's sexy back like that album and uh, <laughs> which is a great album i i stand by that say what you will <laughs> but I just remember I called my mom and I was so sad. <laughs> like, I, I probably cried. And so for me, like I had this sense of duty to Miami in a weird way. Like I had felt like, you know, graduating college, I had a couple job opportunities, one of which in Muncie, Indiana for twice as much money. And I had a house where I could park my Jeep. Um, yeah. Why did I borrow that convertible when I drove a Jeep? I can't explain that one. Yeah. Right. Miami does strange things to you. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, I had to manually pull the Jeep's top down. I could just hit the buttons on the, I think it was a Sebring. It wasn't like a, you know, Benz. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I remember driving. I was actually ended up down at Coral Reef Park and um, just being on the phone with my mom. So sad. And, but just feeling this overwhelming sense of duty. Like, this is the job that I've been, you know, mm. been hired to. This is This is where I'm at right now. I need to make the best of it. And... I just had this sense of, of duty and it, it took me a, about a year to really, I would say, fall in love with Miami. And the thing that finally did it for me was, um, the community because it's, it's just like you guys are saying, um, anywhere you go, there's the pitfalls, right? Like, you know, like right now I'm sure it's winter somewhere in the rest of the country. I usually get, I forget about that about this time of year. It's like, Oh yeah, winter's still going on. Like we're in our that's, third or fourth month of thing. gorgeous yeah. weather. But um, you remember we, we had a, at that house Victor and I rented, we had a St. Patrick's Day party and Victor said it was, this will be the last time we can party outside. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I just, there was this foreign aspect of Miami. Like the first weekend I was in Miami, uh, someone I had a really unique experience when I actually moved here full time after those two summers. Um, like the first, like probably moved here on like a Friday and like a Monday morning, uh, went out on a sailboat, I think it was, or something like that. I don't remember exactly when, but I'm out on a sailboat in, in Biscayne Bay and the owner of the boat is, is telling me and my, my friend, he's like, yeah, you know, people say about Miami, you'll love it. It's so close to the U S and I think that's been probably the most, apropos description of Miami I've ever heard because yeah we're in the United States of America but it really doesn't feel like it compared to what I grew up with um you know here anywhere I go I might get spoken to in Spanish and I have to figure out how to get what I need in English um but growing up if you went somewhere that only spoke Spanish like you were at a Mexican restaurant that is yeah, the yeah. only place where that happened hmm. and even then like they knew their audience and you could speak English. But here, I mean, if I go somewhere by myself, 
sometimes I still struggle. And I, I mean, I studied Spanish in college. Like it took six years of Spanish between high school and college. And I still have such a hard time. I have to get my hair cut. There's lots of pointing at pictures and, you know, things like that. Yes. But, at least you were smarter than I was. I took German. <laughs> <laughs> that served me very well here. So a benefit of that, I actually used this one today. I was walking um, to Publix to do some groceries. Also, top five reason to move back to Miami, Publix. Oh, yes. Publix, Publix chicken tenders. You can even be more yeah. specific. Publix, Publix subs, subs, the soups, just, sweet tea. Yeah. just it. I think Publix um, is the best restaurant in, it, it in Miami. Really is. But yeah, they should was, give us free stuff. They walked into the Publix, and there was a, a blood drive uh, van, and a nurse, or a technician, I don't know if they're really nurses, came up to me to ask me if I wanted to give blood. And I got out of it by saying, um, sorry, no Spanish. Because she didn't speak English. She came up to me asking me in Spanish. You liar. And I, yeah, I was, you know, well, yeah. I was going fi- to figure out some lie to get out of giving blood at, at 5 p.m. on a Monday. Right. <laughs> you could have just had a walking home. I can't give blood. That's right. Yeah. I'd be like, but I, no. I, said, I said, like, sorry, no, no Spanish. And it's, it's like the kind of like the opposite is what, you know, you hear often like, oh, knowing less. But there in Miami, the presumption is that you speak Spanish. And it's like that scene from The Simpsons when the, they go to Australia and Marge wants a coffee. And the, the bartender says, beer. And he's like, no, 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 C-O-B-E. Yeah. And, and here you go order, you know, go to Wendy's or wherever. And it's like, okay, I'll have a, you know, chicken tender. Okay, pollo. And like, yeah, chicken. It's like, mm-hmm, pollo. Right. <laughs> and yeah, and you, you roll with it. You either completely hate it, rebel, and eject out of the city within a year. Um, yes. Or you get used to it, you roll with it, and love it. Of course, there's the assumption of knowing Spanish, but I've I've told people I'm sorry, I, I don't understand, and they would they would speak English and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I just assumed you were Cuban. Wow, like specifically, if you could see Matt, yes. Well, but it's I have brown eyes. Not even when you wear a guayabera. I have brown <laughs> eyes and I have brown facial hair. Yeah, that and I'm you're Cuban. under six feet tall. Um, yeah, I'm over six feet. Well, <laughs> no, I'm five ten. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. But it just—it's not—not that I'm look so Cuban, but I don't have blonde hair. I don't have blue eyes. Mm-hmm. So our friend Adam—I'll let you say some Alex. But our friend, uh, on that note, our friend Adam was telling me recently that he went to Spain. <clears throat> now Adam is gringo. Adam's from your neck of the woods, right? Adam's from. Uh, he's from North Carolina. He's from North Carolina. North okay, Carolina. but you guys knew him. You know, growing up, everything north of Orlando is our neck of the woods. Apparently. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, just like we're all Mexicans. That's, that's right. Exactly. That's right. So nothing wrong with Mexicans, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but a little tight. So a bushel of avocados, please. Yeah. So Adam goes travels to Spain recently, and tells me that when he gets there, he he's he starts using his he 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 spent a lot of time. He didn't grow up here, but he spent enough time here to to learn some Spanish. So he, he goes to Spain. And he starts talking to somebody, and the guy says to him, "You're from Miami, aren't you?" And he uh, and he said, "How do you know?" He says, "You sound you you speak Spanish like a Cuban," <laughs> which I thought was freaking <laughs> hilarious. Well, and it's the din. It's the it's not people speaking Spanish to you. It's everyone around you speaking mm-hmm. Spanish, and all the ra- the radio. It's Spanish and TV. Everything that you walk by. That's what, as we brought friends down. We and family. It's a cacophony to them it's it's disruptive 
And I found that when we left in 2011, and the first Sunday we went to church, it was like the sixth sense. My wife and I looked at each other like, I see white people. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the din was gone. And it was, it was difficult. That was one of the reasons why we knew we belonged here. So, yeah, so we're, Miami is definitely a place of stories. And we've heard some stories here to, uh, just around this table, just of, of stories of growing up, stories of assimilation. Uh, but there's, there's a million stories in Miami, and we're going to delve into some of these in this podcast. We have, we have some really great stories uh, planned and lined up. Uh, we have, uh, we're going to have folks on this, on this podcast that, that uh, grew up here a long time ago. Uh, can give us some some different perspective on Miami on Miami history. Uh, we're gonna have uh, musicians. We'll have film producers. We'll have all kinds of people on the show. Uh, there's a lot of and and some of these stories. Like if you think about Miami, I mean, it's it's one of those places that you see it come up in movies. I, I forgot what movie I was watching the other day, but there was uh, what was the X X Men Days of Future Past or, or what is it? Yeah, I think it's Days of Future Past. Yeah, where they did yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. yeah, you know, so you ha you you see. No, that's uh, First Class. First Class, that was sorry. it. Yeah, sorry, yeah. So First Class had you know I'm watching this movie and I'm and I had that same reaction you had, Victor, where where you're looking at something and saying, oh, there's Cuba again, you know, and 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 I remember growing up in Miami and even as as a kid we used to have uh, and this is in the 70s. Uh, we had uh, bomb drills where we had to go under the desk, and they called. They said it was tornado. Uh, it was it was for tornadoes, but we don't get tornadoes in Miami. So I was like, why, why are we doing this? Well, it was it was a it was a a layover from from the the Cuban Missile Crisis, where this was something that you did. Uh, you hid under your desk in case it got nuked. One of my one of my favorite because that yeah. was going to help you. I don't understand why in the '80s we didn't just put desks up in space because that that seemed we seemed to yeah. think that would stop a nuclear missile. It was Ronald Reagan's Star Wars plan, I believe, yeah. was to put uh, 1950s desks in space <laughs> right, right, with yeah. chewing gum stuck <laughs> under the the bottom of the wood. Dark uh, and cover. So we have we have amazing uh, global impact stories for some reason in this city. And we also have weird local stories, and we're going to be looking at some of these as well. And the reason, th the reason this matters is because these stories provide context. They provide familiarity, and, and they ultimately help establish a sense of identity and meaning for us here in, in the city. Because one of the things that this city lacks is, a, is, a, is an identity, I think. Um, I think that's one of the things that, that uh, causes such frustration because we don't know who we are. But there's definitely a, a, an underlying identity here, I think. We just w haven't figured it out yet. You saying that, part of me wanted to, to disagree, but then I remember a conversation, Victor, that you and I had about a Miami soccer team. Mm -hmm. And you're like, whose team would it be? Yeah. No one would support it because it wouldn't be their team. Right. Yeah. A a everybody who would be that much into soccer is still cheering on their home team. That you go to a Marlins game here, the Marlins who are 20 years, 25 years, I think, coming into the 25th year, and you'll go to a game there, and you'll see people waving Colombian flags and Venezuelan flags, and they're supporting the particular player on the right, team who's right. from their country, and th there's not yet that kind of, this is Miami uh, there's the kind of the this is the 305. There's that element a bit for for people who were born and raised here, 
They found us. Here comes the choppers. Yes. <laughs> this is also a regular live, occurrence folks. in Miami. <laughs> ambient noise. Ambient noise. Uh, I think they followed you back with that bag of cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but here, um, I remember saying this a while ago at one of the Eagle and Child events that Miami's still really young. At, at some point, New York was a very uh, part in, in a lot of ways. It still is a very partitioned city. But it was New York was a place where like, oh no, those are the Irish people, those are the Italian people, the, you know, that's that group, this is this group, and at some point it melded into this is New York, and part of New York was just being mean to other people, but the, it was the New York style of doing it, and in Miami, I don't think there's yet there's been so much revolution here, and not revolution of you know fighting in the streets, but revolution of like people revolving out and coming in, mm-hmm. certain groups coming in and displacing other groups. So now there, we have a huge community of Venezuelans, yeah. a huge community of Colombians. There's a little Dominican Republic. There's a little Haiti. Argentinians. Argentinians. Um, I went to last. <sighs> Thank God for Argentinians and their steak. Uh, l- last night I went to um, the uh, Miami Film Festival. One of the showings was for a movie about uh, Gilda, pronounced Gila by Argentinians. She was a a singer. Um, popular singer in the 90s who died in a bus crash and mm. has kind of been commemorated in a lot of ways. The movie in a lot of ways is a hagiography of her life. <laughs> would you say <laughs> it was a auto? It was a <laughs> auto hagiography. I no, would hate it to was, think you would call it an auto It was not, it was not because she's been dead for 20 years. But <laughs> um, there, I, I, I went there um, under the uh, influence of my girlfriend who was not even Argentinian, but she loved the singer. Mm. And we go there, and I look around, and I'm thinking, we have to be the only two people here who aren't Argentinian. It was every Argentinian person yeah. that was at least interested in this singer there. There was a big enough crowd. If I told you they're showing a movie about an Argentinian singer from 20 years ago, how many people do you expect to show up? Yeah. They packed the house. Yeah. They packed the entire house because there's that many people. Right. And that's a strange thing. There's not that one identity, but you can fill you know a room of 5,000 seating capacity pretty easily with any one thing because there's right. that many people of that place here hmm. if you live on Miami Beach for five years you'll think Miami's like that mm-hmm. but it's like if you move to New York and you live in Greenwich Village and you tell people like oh yeah New York it's all artists it's all like poets and stuff it's like no it's not at all but if they made a TV show where it's, it's set in New York and all they do is talk to poets and artists then you'd think that's what New York is and Miami is such a different place from Miami Beach, but that still exists here. And all Argentinians eat is steak, and all Mexicans eat is tacos, right? Yeah. It's kind of the same. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Wow, think, I'm Argentinian Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> I think we. It's hard to encapsulate Miami, and so you know when when they're doing production, you want to get you want to paint the picture quickly, right? But that's one of the things I really appreciate about like Anthony Bourdain's show. So he's been to Miami a couple times. Doesn't like it. Right. Fair enough. But he doesn't go, if I recall correctly, he doesn't go to South Beach to the trendy restaurants. He goes to like, like doesn't he go to like Little Haiti or something? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's going to like 8th Street, like way out well, west. He, he goes to, in one episode, he goes to a little botanical shop which sells items for Santeria, which is like voodoo, basically. Uh, yeah, it's voodoo. not a florist. It's a, yeah, it's not a, it's it's not a, a botanica. F- yeah, it's a botanica. It's, it's a weird shop that's full of, you know, shrines and what have you to, to, to do that. That kind of witchcraft, and he tries. He tries to find those places, um, and he also acknowledges the obligatory. Oh yeah, by the way, there's also the hotels, right. and All this 
you know, hip stuff. Yeah, it's and, w- like Burn Notice is fun to watch because they shot it all here, or well, most just, of it here. Just back to Anthony Bourdain real quick. Sure. That's the one person that reached out to Marcos, and we said no. Because <laughs> he doesn't like Miami. Yeah. He's not I wish. No, if Anthony Bourdain wants to come on anytime, man, I love that guy. I would love to sit with Anthony Bourdain as he complains about my city. So, guys, so I didn't mention this earlier as well. We are smoking Partagas cigars. Uh, as well as the very fine Alex Bra- Alec Bradley Prensado, which is a great cigar. Fantastic. But the uh, the Partagas uh, cigar that I'm holding in my hands is is the uh, actually it's the it's the it's a it's a cigar rolled by Benji Menendez. And uh, Benji Menendez was the um, is the master roller for the Partagas line for General Cigars, and as we mentioned in our pre-recorded. Uh, Introduction: The um, uh, Jaime Partagas was the the first person who used uh, a lector in his cigar factory in Cuba back in the 1800s, in the mid 1800s. And it's only appropriate that we would be smoking these cigars tonight. And uh, I also found out uh, in in researching uh, Benji uh, that he his 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 uh, parents, I believe owned the H. Upman Cigar Factory, which just so happens to be where my father worked in Cuba when he was a young lad in his wow. early 20s. I, hadn't, I didn't know that little fact. And I'm looking forward to hopefully interviewing him on this podcast uh, in the future. Uh, these stories matter. Um, and with this Elector podcast, Elector podcast, we will allow these stories to be told. And our, our goal is to basically sit around this table and tell them. And our cigars, right, will offer the time that's needed to tell these stories because we don't want to just brush through them. We want to take our time like we do with these fine cigars. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a time that, o- it's, it's time that only a, like a Churchill-sized cigar will allow, right? This is not a Churchill, but um, I need to get my hands on a Churchill cigar. Uh, so like the lectores of old, our bards will tell their tales and, our, and stories that maybe people will be hearing for the first time will be told here on the Electoral Podcast. 